fellow intellectuals, and welcome to a podcast about quantum mechanics. Not entirely. Actually, it's about renowned mathematician and physicist Ingrid Debashi. But you'll see why I said that in a little bit. I'm Sarah. I'm Daniela. I'm Savannah. I'm Ava. I'm Alicia. And welcome to our podcast. So we all know that in today's age, STEM fields are critical in the labor market. And we're all women here, and I'm pretty sure we've all seen or faced even the stereotypes that women get feared by to join the STEM fields. So we're no longer in the mindset of the 1900s where women weren't allowed to work and were just caregivers. However, we still face implicit bias or stereotypes that women should not work in the STEM fields. There are many women that have made remarkable changes in our world, such as Katherine Johnson, who helped with the trajectory plans for the Project Mercury, and with this famous mathematician, Ingrid Debashi, who we will be talking about today. When we had an interview with her, we actually got to ask her questions about her background, and she originally came from Belgium and then came to America. So we asked her questions based on her life and how she felt that being a woman in her country, how that affected her and coming here and what were the differences. This is what she said. In Belgium, women were also in a minority in, in the STEM fields. I got to more advanced levels. But, and I don't know that the percentages were very different from the States, maybe a little bit. There was, when I came first to the States, which was, oh my, 35 years ago, uh, as a postdoc, there was affirmative action existed here. And I was at first very opposed to it because I felt it was like saying that you were going to give a position or a special treatment to people because they were women. And I felt it, you, you were just as good at the science as, as the men. Why should there be a difference? And I kept thinking that for a number of years and I have changed my point of view not that I ever feel a decision should be made on hiring or awarding a prize or whatever based on gender but I do and I see and I have seen many times that the pool is not already fair to begin with and so that you should as a department trying to hire so make special efforts to make sure that you overcome implicit biases, that you make sure you look at a wider range of candidates than the ones that come to people's mind. Actually, when I went to school, I always went to public schools in Belgium and where I grew up. And at that time, public schools were gender segregated, meaning I was, until I went to university, I always was in classes with only girls. And so I never had the attitude that among the people in the class, uh, maybe I was in a group that was automatically assumed to be less inclined or less interested in science because I was among the girls in the group, because we were all girls. And yes, some people were less interested in science and some others were less interested in history and some others were less interested in language. I mean, yes, these were personal preferences, but it was not viewed as an automatic consequence of my gender group. And so I uh, didn't really encounter that attitude concretely until university. And by then I was too set in my uh, in my, my way. So if I then encountered it, I thought, well, it set 
more about the person making that assumption than about me. And I also, well, I knew I was good at math. So uh, if people were assuming I was not, then I would just, I would let them, I would just put them. So I found it really interesting that she went to an all-girls school and that this didn't change her perspective on how women should work. And I thought it was really cool how she felt that men and women were equal throughout her whole life. And she said that she didn't really face the stereotypes that we face now. And I think that that's something that we all as women should take from. Yeah, I thought that was interesting as well, because I actually go to an all-girls school now. And I definitely do see that with the absence of sort of like a male presence in the classroom, it does sort of become easier to raise your hand and, and, and break from those stereotypes of women, you know, being less smart or being less interested in science when all you see around you are other women who are interested in not only STEM fields, but kind of just everything. Yeah, that's really cool. Debashi was born in Belgium and daughter of Marcel Debashi and Simon Duran. And what I thought was really cool was I read an article and it said that when she was younger, instead of counting sheep to go to sleep, she would compute the powers of two. So in the interview, I asked her if that was true and this was her response. So we read articles online about you and it said when you were younger, you were already familiar with complex mathematical concepts. I'm just asking if that's true, because that's really interesting and cool. Well, uh, yes and no. I mean, um, I, I like mathematics, and my father wanted to stimulate that. And so he is an engineer, and he tried to teach me things like beginning things in calculus and so on. And I did lap that up. But on the other hand, what he was teaching me was really the little rules in calculus. I mean, how do you differentiate a polynomial, how do and so on. And that didn't mean that I really had a deep understanding of what was going on mathematically. So I, yes, I could, I could be shown as exhibit A for somebody who was uh, at age 11 doing calculus. But no, I hadn't really understood analysis. I'm kind of happy that wasn't true because you aren't born like good at something you have to practice and practice, which I think is really good because most people are like, oh, I can't do this only because they're not practicing. So practice makes perfect, guys. She excelled in primary school, moved up a class after only three months. She entered Verge University, Brussels, at age 17 in 1975. She obtained her PhD in theoretical physics in 1980. During a visit in 1986, the current Institute of Mathematical Sciences, Debashi made her most important discovery, wavelets. Now you might be wondering, what is a wavelet? Now my buddy Sarah here will tell you what a wavelet is. Yes, as Ava so eloquently put, I'm about to tell y'all what a wavelet is. So, a wavelet is a wave-like oscillation with an amplitude. Amplitude is just how tall the wave is that begins at zero, increases, and, decre and then decreases back to zero. So, for all my musicians out here listening, it's like you sort of have a crescendo and then a decrescendo back down to nothing again. It's like a free sample of a wave. 
Wavelets, in some form, are frequently used in computer science. Another application of her work has to do with the determination of real versus counterfeit paintings. But actually, she says herself that she doesn't find this application very interesting. And in fact, it really only came up once during her research. What is more interesting, she finds, are what she's working on currently. I have a, a couple of different directions in which I'm working. I'm still working on projects for art uh, conservators. Actually, we're working on streamlining tools that will make it possible for interested museum goers who want to work with their the local museum help virtually rejuvenate some old medieval paintings. I mean, remap colors, remove cracks, and so on. And if that is done then to the satisfaction of the curators of the museum, these might be uploaded so that other visitors to the museum could compare what they see with this virtual rejuvenation. So that's one thing that was, I was just at the last meeting I had before we had this call was with a student working on that. I'm also working, and that was the meeting before that, with uh, biologists on finding biologically relevant ways of expressing similarities or dissimilarities between surfaces. So the people I work with are morphologists, so they they study teeth and bones of animals that are still living or fossils. And many cases what they want is learn about living things and take it back to fossils. So for instance, for living animals, you can, from their teeth, judge what they eat, not just whether they're carnivores or not, but you can see whether they're insectivores or red meat eaters, or, or, or you can herbivores, you can see whether they eat mostly fruit or, or, or mostly leaves or, or grass or, or and so on. And um, if you can see that from the, the surface of their teeth, and if you can see that in a way that's independent of the size of the animal, if it's true for shrews as well as elephants, then you can use those insights to then go in the fossil record where you don't know what the animals ate, deduce from their teeth what their diet was and understand better the population with respect to the other population. That's just a simple example. There are many others where you try to understand things from the shape of, of uh, so you interpret from and then of course you put that together with all the genetic information we have and in order to understand evolution so what that means is that you want to be able to not just look at it as just glancingly and say oh yes these look similar and that doesn't you want to quantify that so that you can statistically evaluate these things now, mathematicians have many ways in which to quantify differences between surfaces and how similar they are or not, but not all of those are biologically meaningful. And so we've worked with biologists for a number of years to, in close collaboration, to find biologically meaningful ways of finding similarities and then also remap. I mean, say these points correspond to those points on those teeth and so on, and do that all automatically so that it would be possible to work on many, many different samples in collections rather than just a few. Typically, it's done by biologists marking very special points on this, and they say this red point is the same as that red point, and these orange and green and so on. But it's very tedious to do that. So typically, they don't mark up 
a great many of them. And so there are many more bones in collections than are used in scientific studies because it's so tedious. If we could do that automatically, then it would be much more systematic. I found this really cool as well. And I actually did ask her uh, what her most interesting, in her opinion, project or experiment she worked on was. But she said that it was impossible to choose and that it would be like a mother choosing what her favorite child was. So I guess we will never know. Now, with all of these wonderful discoveries, you may be wondering, what kind of awards has she received? Well, to put it simply, she has received a good amount of awards. These are some, but are not limited to, uh, the Louis M. Payne Prize for Physics in 1984, the Steele Prize for Mathematical Exposition in 1994, the Ruth Little Satter Prize in Mathematics in 1997, and many more. I really treasure, I mean, the MacArthur Fellowship I got was fantastic and continues to be fantastic because with it comes a contact with MacArthur Fellows in other fields. And I have found they're such interesting people. And every time I meet, uh, I meet them. We sometimes have reunions, and, and I learn so much. And I learn. It has given me ideas, even within mathematics, even if they're not mathematicians. Just that interaction has been fantastic. I also really treasured the award I got from the National Academy, the award in mathematics, because well. That, very prestigious and I felt that but I have had awards from the American Math Society and that is fantastic too because that's in a sense my tribe I mean and to get recognition from other mathematicians I mean those are ceremonies where there's so many friends afterwards who come up to me and, and I enjoy that of course and then even recently I had an award that comes from a joint program of UNESCO and L'Oreal where they find women in different areas of the world. And this was the first year that they had mathematics as part of it. And I enjoyed that too, because I myself, I wear makeup and on special occasions only, not, not daily. And uh, people ask me, so L'Oreal is this big makeup beauty product from a company, but I do not believe in this stereotype that you have to be somebody who doesn't take dressing up or fashion or makeup seriously in order to be serious as a scientist. I mean, I think these are two completely different things. And I, I have known mathematicians who do care about fashions and who are fantastic. I mean, and I don't, wouldn't want us to avoid them because they are fashionable. For her accomplishments, she has used math to identify art forgeries, reconstruct extinct animals' diets, and thanks to the Debachi's wavelets, it has become possible to use compression for reducing drastically all fingerprints available, implying much more efficient personal identifications and identity controls. Now on to her later life. In January 2011, she moved to Duke University to fill in as a teacher of mathematics. In 2012, King Albert II of Belgium conceded her the title of Baroness. Dubachis and Calderbank have two youngsters, Michael and Carolyn Calderbank. She was the principal lady to be leader of the International Mathematical Union in 2011 
and 2014. She's best known for her work with wavelets and picture pressure. She is at present the James B. Duke teacher in the branch of arithmetic and electrical and PC building at Duke University. In the mid-year of 2016, she and Heek Young had established Duke Summer Workshop in Mathematics for Female Ascending Secondary School Seniors. In January 2005, Dubashi's turned out to be the only third lady since 1924 to give the Josiah Willard Gibbs lecture supported by the American Mathematical Society. Her discussion was on the interplay between NLS and algorithm. Not only have we learned about Ingrid Dubashi's research and the incredible things that she's done, but we also got to learn her background culture and how that affected her views on why she was able to prosper in the STEM field. And I think that it was very cool that we get to ask her about a piece of advice that she would give us because as a successful woman in the STEM field, we wanted to get that advice. So this is what she said. You encounter people who might not immediately take you seriously, regardless of whether it's because of gender or any other reason. Just stick to your guns and always ask questions. I remember um, getting advice as a, a graduate student who was working on, on things with other graduate students and somebody, one of the more senior guys, giving us the advice says, don't accept proof by intimidation from the others. <laughs> if, if they haven't explained it, make them explain I mean, and but of course, it also means doing hard work. I mean, you can't always ask people to explain from basics things that you should have. But if within the framework of what you're doing, they're not clear, I mean, be firm about it, ask and so on and keep learning. I mean, that's one thing. If I regret one thing with my more advancing career is that it has given left me less time to learn new things. I think that we should all take away from this piece of advice because it's very important that we continue to empower women in STEM and that we listen to Ingrid Debashi's because she's a very famous and renowned mathematician and I think that her advice will really help us to succeed in the future. As we can see, Dr. Debashi's is an incredibly influential and successful female mathematician and I think that she can be an inspiration for us all whether or not we want to go into STEM, humanities, you know, whatever. <laughs> With all that being said, I hope you guys learned something. So long and good night or good morning or good day. Goodbye. smart every equation you do is a form of art it's time to get together fly rockets build a house and control the weather with math 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 yes who here likes math is not a man you could be a female mathematician